complex. So is our mental health. It cannot be understood by diagnosis alone. Our philosophy is treat the person, not the mental illness. Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanizing Mental Health. This is Jeremy Alcorn. This is Trent Nakers. And this is Amy Alcorn-Henricks. Uh, we want to welcome you to this episode. Uh, today we're going to be talking more in depth about the mental health crisis. One of the things that has happened currently uh, as a result of the pandemic is much more people have been directly aware of the intensity of the the crisis that has been occurring. It's been uh, much more talked about uh, and, and to a, a lot of degree, I think it's been blamed on the pandemic. And really, this mental health crisis has actually existed far before the pandemic. Um, Harkening back to our very first episode, I used an analogy uh, about feeling like I was the the little Dutch kid that sees the 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 dam has a has a crack in it, and they stick their finger in there and and try to hold back the tide. And, uh, and that's actually been the case for a very long time. So one of the things we wanted to do today is talk about what does the mental health system look like from the inside, from the therapist's point of view. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that that's a, a very poignant topic because I, um, I may be wrong, but for a lot of people when they come in and come in for a mental health appointment, um, they're not really aware of all of the vast systems that that structure how our you know how we provide care. What what are the benefits? What are the limits? And really, how that kind of comes out in the final product. You know, they um, they order their ice cream, but they're not really aware of uh, of how it's made. And I think that going through there and looking at some of your calluses as you've plugged various holes over your career, even though I will say, my friend, you you don't look like you've been practicing for as long as you have. You've got the hair of a beach boy and uh, the jaw of an action hero. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) Uh, You're welcome. So as we take uh, this journey in the Wayback Machine, where is our first stop, Germany? Uh, Yeah, uh, I think what would be really helpful is is defining a little bit. One of the things that you, as, as you talk about length of time of practice and stuff, one of the things that jumped out at me is we really have a fragmented system. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I've actually worked in several different parts of that system uh, and, and in just kind of clarifying what, what that is. So I, I've worked in the not-for-profit sector. Um, I work directly for the federal government. Um, I've worked for uh, Alberta Health Services. I worked for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, in their mental health uh, system. And most recently, I've worked as a private practitioner. Okay, wow. That, that is quite a long and storied career. Um, just starting off, I mean, you know, uh, I know the... Um the concept of non-for-profit and I mean like it's sort of the idea well basically of that individuals come in and, and that they don't have to pay or it's covered by um, uh, by various sources but how would you really define or kind of give sort of a thumbnail sketch from your perspective of what is a non-for-profit yeah um, 
That's a good question because there were still fees. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of not-for-profit uh, mental health services don't have the ability to gain enough funding to be able to cover all their costs. And so th- there was still a, a fee structure. Now, mm-hmm. now, my experience is one in which I really considered myself lucky. I had the opportunity to work at the Calgary Counseling Center, and that started when I was a, a practicum student as an MSW. Mm-hmm. There was... 30 students there at once. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were broken into uh, supervision groups. And the it, it really was a mutually beneficial process because in order for them to keep their fees low, they needed to be able to provide services to people that maybe would only be able to pay $2. Maybe they could pay $6, maybe $20. Um, and one of the interesting points, and they showed us some some research that was about this, is somebody paying for service, whether it's just two dollars, or wh- whether it's a lot more than that, actually had a difference on outcome. It's strange, but but there's a, a level of investment mm. that comes in in that. So it was interesting, but at the same time, of course, don't want. Uh, cost to be a, a, a barrier. And so in order to provide service to people that didn't have the ability to to pay very much, then they had students. Now, that, that was, as I said, mutual, mutually beneficial in that the, 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 the students actually benefited tremendously from the organization because they really had things put together really well. The um, they had an entire floor, downtown Calgary, Alberta, and every single therapy room was wired with uh, cameras and mics. They had uh, um, observation rooms, so they had glass in there, um, and you, you could receive direct observation. You could, could record sessions. Of course, all of this within uh, people consenting for that observation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you, you got this really good direct supervision that wasn't just about talking about what someone's problem was, but actually seeing how you're working with it so that they could give direct uh, feedback into how to improve as a clinician and also improve the therapy that was happening for that specific client. It was amazing. Yeah. And in fact, I, I think I remember you telling me a story of kind of what it was like as, you know, you're sitting on either side of the glass and having that feedback. And I I can't imagine what it would be like to have sort of that direct and immediate um, advice and sort of way to implement it. It's basically um, because in my own journey, when you're going through and you're just learning, it's like thinking to yourself, okay, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? I kind of need sort of that larger global view. And it, it sounds to me almost like you were, if, if we were to look at this, almost it was the, a perfect setup, almost like a teaching hospital. It's like Jeremy's version of ER. Yeah. In fact, um, the very first person, I'll be very cautious not to share any details that, um, that would breach someone's confidence. It's just the very first person that I saw on my own actually brought a knife into the appointment. Wow. Yeah. So so they, they told me, they showed me this knife, and uh, I was thinking to myself, why did I let them sit between me and the door? 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, like right there, like, yeah, I, I know that, that, that that's like one of the big things is that the, the therapist is always supposed to sit closest to the door because <laughs> you, you know, you never realize how important seating is until you think about angles. And then if you need to dash out, it's like, okay, wait, whoa, rookie mistake. I'm not doing that again. <laughs> In fact, uh, interestingly enough, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a threat in any way. Um, it had to do with, uh, um, psychotic issues that this person had in which the, the knife had, uh, had initials on it. And those initials represented something to that person mm. that, uh, that was a set part of a set of delusions that was impossible. And, um, and, and so there was, there was no actual risk and I was able to, to sit through that uh, appointment with them. But my very first appointment was with someone that, that had psychotic features. So, okay. So I'm a little curious when you sat down with your supervisor after that, like after that first appointment, and you were reviewing, what 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 was the feedback that you were given, my friend? Yeah, it was um, it was very interesting because they were able to say, "Okay, you can't fix that problem. Mm-hmm. No, there's no amount of talk therapy that's going to fix delusions or that's going to fix um, psych- psychosis." Mm-hmm. So then, uh, what are goals that you can define mm-hmm. that actually are going to help this person? Yeah, and uh, and it became about that. And right there, I I think that 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 that's a real key point um, that I I think that we could almost hit on because I mean you and I have talked about in the past too about when you've worked in various capacities working with individuals. It's all about. Where where is their state of change? Or where are they at? Like whether they're hungry, whether they have um, you know psychotic issues, and what are you really able to do as a practitioner based around like what are the primary concerns they're dealing with at the moment? For sure. So for this person, it meant linking up with their their doctor to ensure that the the right kind of care was happening from that medical um, position as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so. In, inside the Calgary Counseling Center, then community me- needs were met rather rather well mm-hmm. um, because they had this flexible system. And I think this is part of the, the comparison point is around the how flexible is the system and what is its capacity to actually be able to help people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, like it, it was, re- it sounds like it was really client focused, and it, and they recognized. And you can correct me if I'm wrong here that they were a primary point of contact for so many of these people. So basically, if that was the place that they were going to go, you kind of needed this to almost be a one stop shop or almost like a train station where if if their needs were going to be met with counseling, that would be great. But then you could also branch off and go off to these various things. But this would kind of be a hub. Am I wrong? Yeah, like uh, we, we certainly did have other community connections. A primary intervention was psychotherapy, was counseling. Um, but they they had connections to the justice system with a family violence program, with an individual counseling program, family therapy, um, and and there was like a really kind of surround uh, uh, service process that, that also really, really emphasized the development of clinicians. So 
Um, we got uh, three hours every single week that was about training us to deal with certain kinds of problems. Um, HIV and AIDS, uh, specific training for depression, specific training for family violence, understanding, readiness for change. Um, there was 90 hours of training that came with that. Wow. And I'm like just hearing that, I'm, I'm almost imagining you basically going from like basically session to training and being able to have that direct connection, that direct knowledge and application. That, that sounds like a very um, unique environment. Yeah, so it was amazing actually sitting in uh, the observation rooms um, or doing the appointment and using the the people that were doing the observation for a reflecting team. We would switch spaces and uh, my client and myself would go into the observation room. The rest of the team would go into the therapy room. The rest of the team would reflect on what they saw happen in the in that therapy room and emphasize key things that stood out to them and it was ridiculous to see the 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 client just like glued to the glass as they're watching intently and listening to what that feedback was and that um how that then uh became integrated into their part of change yeah like i um like that that's that's really interesting that you bring that because I can all I I really wonder what it was like for the client like because you said that they were glued to that so it sounds like they got they got almost like a little extra dose of therapy too and got those individual insights and I'm I'm almost wondering like as a client because like just coming in there it's sort of the trust that they have to give for students and just having that that extra bit. So they, it was really a value added for them. Yeah, it was uh, very much so having a feeling that you you met people's needs for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Um, so were there um, a specific groups of clients or specific concerns that you felt that you uh, dealt with more so there that you um, kind of uh, got more um, experience with? Yeah. Um, uh, it really, I found that there was, it wasn't really my choice. It just kind of was something that came into my life. And that, mm-hmm. that is, uh, I worked with a lot of, lot of kids there. Okay. Um, what was that like for you at the time? Cause I believe that Amy was born around that time and was a little girl, was she not? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Do you do you remember much from that time, Amy, the, of our life? Not really. <laughs> what a genuine response. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you remember living in Calgary, don't you? Um, a little bit, but I was a small kid. Yeah, I mean, you you moved to we moved to Cold Lake uh, when you were five. So, yeah. yeah. So I, I I'm just a little little bit curious. I'm so. Amy was basically from the ages of zero to four, and you were dealing with a lot of kids. What was it like for you as a student practitioner to be dealing with kids and then to go home and have your your daughter as well? Yeah. um, To be honest, I really, it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. And and I I think that that's um, a really important, authentic uh, statement. 
um, I really wanted to be able to develop develop a, a career, and I wanted to take every opportunity that I could to do mm-hmm. that. And this this was the kind of work that was finding me. And there were there were times that that I felt like uh, I'm not really sure exactly what difference I'm making. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and you know we were trained in doing play therapy. Where I was doing trans uh, sand tray stuff and so forth. And uh, the the parents would come back and would say, "Wow, my my kid is much more regulated, or these these things are, are happening better." And and I I often thought, I'm not even sure I understand why that's true. <laughs> so reflecting back on that um so it sounds to me like you you were dealing with the child if you, if you were to look at that um where 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 do you think that um that true change could have really taken place i think uh that maybe i didn't really fully understand some some things and that actually the my supervisor kept saying she would say, "Trust the process. Trust the process. Trust the process, mm-hmm. and um, know that you don't have to fix everything all at once." Um, and she also said, "If you have a sand tray um, session, then you have to record it because um, it has to be something that I can I can can witness." So because children very easily dissociate in these, and I need to be able to see what's happening. So. It's not, you know, there's a little bit of trepidation there mm-hmm. in understanding actually the seriousness mm-hmm. of what we're doing. It seems like it's just play. Yeah. Um, but actually, there's a depth of power here that I'll be honest that I didn't really feel like I understood. And I wanted to be very careful because I didn't want to ha- cause harm. Now, when you're saying a depth of power, a few different things come up for me, but can you tell me a little bit more about where you find the depth of power really dwelled? Yeah, uh, and really those comments in terms of when the supervisor said, kids will dissociate in this. I, I, there's something realizing or understanding that the physicality of the sand itself Mm. Um, and 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 how that connected to the the that child's nervous system. Now, I wouldn't have used those exact words before. I would have just went, "Oh boy, I don't think I really understand this." So, uh, because I don't really understand this, I need to be careful. Mm-hmm. And uh, being careful was important. And um, as I said, uh, when I did decide to leave, and I was telling parents, "I'm not going to be here anymore." I'm going to work with the military, then they would be like, ah, your skills are wasted. Why are you doing that? This is what you're good at. So when you heard stuff like that, I'm just, I'm wondering like how, how that resonated with you. Like when you hear that, when you heard that from the parents. I was like, um, thank you. And um, this isn't what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, I recognize that there's a there's a value there for you, but my heart really isn't in it. And I I really kind of hear from you. It's like I don't you didn't really feel like you had a full understanding of the impact that you were having. And it really sounds to me like that was 
having a real negative impact on you and how you are really understanding your role and even understanding children. Am I well, wrong? And, and I think I would come back to my, my, my own position. My own position uh, inside me was like, number one, I have, I'm responsible financially to take care of my family. And um, I care about, I want, I want to do that in a specific way. I trained and got a master's degree in social work because I want to make a difference in other people's lives. Um, it's just my primary responsibilities to my own family. And inside me, right from before I ever got into school, I had a fear that I wouldn't be able to do that, that I wouldn't be able to take care of my family. And so if it means that I, I need to work with clients that really are not my target popu- population, to get my primary goal met, then mm-hmm. I'll do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I have the ability to be able to actually work with what I want to work with, then I won't work with the population that isn't my target pop- population, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I think that that makes perfect sense. because, And, and I think that especially for... Um, those are like those of us in social work and those of us that you know provide mental health therapy because the, there's there's always sort of this overarching mantra of wanting to be of service to your community but then it's also about how do we also then be of service to ourselves and kind of balancing out those two key parts and making sure really that we are um, when we're treating the people that that that's something that that we have full investment in, and I think that's something so difficult um, for a lot of practitioners. And um, you know, even when some people will say, and, and I've read books as well, well, where some therapists um, have said to clients or, or had to transfer clients out because you just don't have the the ability to keep working with that person it's not that they don't deserve care or don't have other things that they could potentially work on it's about how far can you truly take that and where is our personal and professional reservoir and when is it running out yeah in fact i'll tell one quick story about this so at the calgary counseling center i trained in individual counseling couples counseling family therapy i ran groups i supervised a a children of divorce program that was a family systemic intervention i uh, also facilitated children's groups for um, children that were struggling with uh, behavior problems, self-regulation, family violence issues. Um, so I, I did a variety of things. So this mm-hmm. wasn't the whole the whole picture. It's just uh, a piece of it. Mm-hmm. But one particular story, I remember there was a, a child that I was seeing that was like four years old or not quite five. And I, I remember... Um, the mom coming back, and this is when I was saying, hey, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm going to Cold Lake. And uh, the, the mom saying, "Your why? Your skill set's going to be wasted. Um, and she was telling me about the um, improvements that her, her son had made. And I'm thinking, that's wonderful. And uh, a lot of the stuff I was doing was really non-directive. And, and, and I was thinking, okay, in the last appointment... We made hand mountain. That's what we did. We made mm-hmm. hand mountain for some reason because that's what he, he, he wanted to do, which was really just a big sand pile uh, with his hand print on it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really sure how making hand mountain actually brought this outcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. well, and and you know, right there, um, when you bring when you mentioned that, um, I just started a, 
a book um, just called um, You're Not Listening. Um, anyway, and it was talking about parents with children and it's it's really about being there with the child and having that moment and having that attachment and i mean as we kind of circle back to one of those things it sounds to me like that was a real pure moment of attachment with him and it's about finding that connection and even though maybe that wouldn't have been um exactly apparent for you it sounds like maybe that having somebody there with him and kind of having that moment of building and that, that wonder was meaningful. I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, comment to the listeners specifically. Um, one of the, the dynamics that, that plays out with us, so while Trenton, or Trent and I are physically in the same room, um, Amy is actually in Idaho and is connecting over uh, uh, a phone call. And uh, and I, I recognize as we're going that probably shifts the dynamic a little bit um, because we get so engaged that we, we maybe don't even leave any space for her to talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, 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 Amy. We, 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 would you like to pipe in and maybe you know get, get between your father and I and say you're still we're still here or I'm still here? <laughs> well, I am still here. Um, uh, I I do have a question. Yeah. So going from working with kids to moving to Cold Lake and working with the military, that's a big change. That's a big dynamic change. And so I'm curious what your experience was with that. Yeah. Moving it, different environments and different people. For sure. Like, uh, so a couple of things happen. One is working not for profit has a, the Calgary Counseling Center is wonderful. It's just that the ability to build a secure financial foundation, not great. Mm-hmm. And, and that's part of the problem in our system is people think that um, getting help uh, shouldn't really cost a lot of money. And they're probably right. Um, it's just that the, the practitioners themselves, they deserve to be compensated it is really, really hard work, and mm-hmm. it has a major impact on the practitioners. And um, and why is a lawyer paid more than a therapist? Now, I have nothing against lawyers. I'm just saying, why is that the case? What, what, why is it that someone's okay with paying $100 an hour um, for labor costs to fix their car? So... So, so that not-for-profit process, although I, I think that there needs to be universal process for people, there also needs to be um, a proper compensation to that practitioner. And that's really what brought me to leave, because uh, buy a house in Calgary for $400,000 and do that on an income that was $50,000, you can't. Yeah, yeah. Like right, right. When I hear that, what I'm hearing is, is that you know, it's sort of the idea of I, I'm serving the population. You, you, at that point, you're somebody with a master's degree. You're um, a highly educated individual. But then it's like, you know, do I want to be in in the breadline along with the people that I'm I'm serving? Yeah, for sure. And uh, they they deserve to not be in the breadline. I deserve not to be in the breadline. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it's, it's, it's true. And so, 
uh, I certainly am not motivated by by money. That's not my most important thing in life. No, I um, But to have not. a foundation of security is really important. So to answer your question about transitioning to Cold Lake, Amy, um, so uh, I, I got a phone call from uh, someone that had been in my supervision group in in. Uh, the Calgary Counseling Center. That's how I ended up going to Cold Lake. They said, hey, I've been posted to Cold Lake. They're a military member. We're having problems being able to get the skill set that we're looking for. There's this open competition. Will you apply? So then it was a big decision. Decided to uh, go to uh, Canadian Forces Base Cold Lake. I was a social work officer, civilian uh, there, working both in the mental health department and in their what they call the psychosocial um, department. And really what would happen is an individual would identify that they had a problem or maybe their chain of command did or maybe uh, the doctor did. And when they first came in, then it was as simple as, what do you need help with? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and what a wonderful uh, process. Because from there, then we worked on whatever it is that was getting in their way of life. And, uh, and, and if it became clear that potentially maybe there's something that is, has developed into more of an illness, then we would do further assessment from there. So that, that first transition was, was very interesting. I remember I was only there a couple of days and I was introduced at the senior non-commissioned members um, mess hall. And I'll never forget what I said. So this is full of sergeants um, and above, all of them that are on base. And I said, I'm very happy uh, to be a part of this, um, like, uh, this dinosaur. But there's, there's something else that was with that. I'm trying to remember. Um, this rambling dinosaur. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. I, I remember what I was. Okay. So I, I'm, I'm happy to be uh, uh, a part of, of this. Uh... Oh, man. Now my, now my, my mind went sideways. Was it, was it similar to that, that, that? Remember that speech that you were going to give? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, um, lumbering dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. I'm grateful to be part of this lumbering dinosaur that we call the military. And my, my supervisor looked at me and, and she took the mic and said, lumbering dinosaur <laughs> yeah like I, I, i'm sorry but like a, as i'm hearing that i'm like are you eating a bit of shoe leather right now man like <laughs> and then what i didn't know is that in that culture the the people that had been around for a long time and were kind of stuck in their ways were called dinosaurs Oh, okay. So, so crusty, yeah. crusty old chief warrant officer dinosaur. <laughs> I see. So uh, th- th- there was some um, things about the uh, subculture of the military that you were being confronted with directly. Yeah. Now, when we talk about that system, because there's lots of mistakes, lots of problems, uh, especially lately, those problems have been pointed out um, uh, in terms of... Uh, in inappropriate um, actions that have been taken, people that have been harmed internally, um, issues around sexual orientation, discrimination, um, issues around sexual abuse. And I'm not taking away from those problems at all because th- those are real. And, and at the same time, they had an ability to look after their people like almost no other system I've seen. 
So can can you can you get, give a little bit more context for that man? Like when you say that you cared for their people. Yeah. Okay. So someone is sick. Well, when you're a military member, you can't just call and say, "Hi, I'm sick." You know, I'm not coming into work. You you have to go to what they call sick parade. So you show up, basically walk in clinic. You're assessed, mm-hmm. and uh, and then they they write off saying, "Yeah, you're not going to work," or whatever process they put in play. So one of the things that we had is that we had a mental health. Ther- therapist, uh, psychologist, or social worker that had their day was set to support the sick parade first. Mm. They called them the duty um, mental health worker. So uh, we, we would have maybe one appointment set that day, maybe two appointments. Other than that, none. Because we would actually be just there for whoever walks in. And you saw them immediately literally the doctor would say come on down we'd sit down we have a conversation with the doctor they would say this person needs support we would take them to our office we would go through a screening we would find out all of that the data that was going on we would consult with the team we would either usually take them on ourselves mm-hmm. or go huh this is better suited to somebody else and then they would be seen every single week until they were better oh my word like <laughs> Wow, like I, 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 I'm, I'm absolutely flabbergasted. Like, yeah, like when you say that they cared for their own, like it was basically whatever you need until this crisis has passed. Or- for sure. And then it's like, okay, hey, we see that maybe this is um, an operational stress injury, maybe some PTSD. Well, then we were making a referral to internal resources for big, full assessments. They would get specialized care. They would come back to us for aftercare. Um, I, I saw treatment processes that nobody else has in terms of ab- ability to be able to take care of that membership. Now, keep in mind, this was an Air Force base, and I know that not all of these are the same. So you talk to somebody that maybe was in Gagetown or Edmonton or um, mm-hmm. one of the other Army bases, and perhaps perhaps they didn't exactly have the same system in place. But I'm, I'm telling you, this particular uh, base, this particular system was... Um, set up um, amazing so i'm just uh, i'm a little bit curious um to um if you were to compare the referral time and the resources available from the air base to the calgary counseling center um how would you compare them so there was uh, not quite as smooth of an ability at the calgary counseling center they uh, had a really good system it's just someone would call in, do an intake, and then within like three or four days, they would have uh, they would be assigned to somebody. So there was like three or four days, maybe uh, a week before they were got back to to get an appointment. When they got an appointment, it was very quick. It was within a few days or a week that they got an appointment. Okay, yeah. So I mean, it was there, but I mean, then, the, but it just took a, there. There was a bit of lag time then, basically. Yeah, whereas for the for the military, it was literally, if you called, you got an appointment within a couple of days. If you walked in, you could see the duty mental health worker that moment. Yeah, and you know, you, you keep bringing up all of these titles, and I mean, that to me is something that, that's really curious for me, um, because it, it almost sounds like you were, you were put in this structure. And I mean, one thing that, that we talk about all the time in training as a a social worker is the idea of power over versus power with what was it like 
for you walking into that structure and being imbued with that title. Yeah, it's a, it, it's interesting because you talk about power and actually it takes me a slightly different place than the question you asked. The slightly different place okay. is um, power in the military has to do with rank structure. Mm-hmm. And so f- for me, actually, there was times I was intimidated by that power because uh, my role was to provide psychotherapy, but it was also to provide briefings. Mm. It was also to provide screenings um, before someone left for deployment, when they came back from deployment. Um, it, so, so I screened com- commanding officers that were leaving to be the, uh, uh, to be the leader to command the deployment. And, um, and at times, and when a colonel was coming into my office, I, at, back at that, at that state, that time, I was intimidated. Um, I, 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 I'm just hearing that. And for me, like right when I hear that, I'm thinking, okay, um, the level of responsibility that comes with that, like I'm screening somebody that's going to be a leader of men. Those individuals are going to be, you know, potentially in danger. So it sounds like you had a big responsibility, not only to that colonel, but every single person underneath them. Yeah, you you bring up a good point, and I and I would say, and I don't mean this as a um, in any disrespectful way, Trent. Just I think at times our our um, language, although is not intentional, um, I would say men and women. Okay. Um, because like uh, mostly it's men, but there's a fair number of of women service members than. Uh, with that had that same kind of culture, that same kind of uh, um, expectation and pressure. And you're you're right. I was actually more concerned about at times screening people to deploy because Afghanistan was the major deployment at that point in time, mm. and it's my, not my choice, right? Mm. They this is their job, and if they're green and they're good to go, then they're good to go. I just kind of felt like I don't want to screen someone that doesn't come back. So, um, so basically, it sounds like you were worried about like putting putting somebody out in the field, them not coming back, and and you feeling responsible for like basically being the person that says you're good to go. Yeah, mm-hmm. like years later, I ended up meeting someone at uh, addiction and mental health, and um, it's like one of my last days that I was I was working with Alberta Health Services and uh, in one of my last appointments, and they said you don't remember me. Um, you screened me to go on deployment. And so they don't, they told me earlier about some of the traumas that happened on their deployment. Um, and so it was kind of a, that full circle kind of feeling or experience. Yeah. Whoa, oh, wow. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Amy. I didn't. I didn't want to cut you off. We, we, we're, we're not meaning to leave you floating in the background. Um, do you, do you have something to add there, pal? Oh, I was just remarking about how crazy that is, and especially with the events within the last year, um, people coming back from Afghanistan. That must have been um, pretty difficult for you to add. Yeah, it was. Um, it was certainly surreal, strange. Like I, I, I actually feel an emptiness inside me as I describe it, a bit of a numbness. And that's probably not fair because I'm. It's not my decision. All I'm there to do is to check to see is everything in order properly in your psychosocial process for you to deploy. That's it. 
And, uh, and then when they come back, um, about three months later, to be able to reevaluate that and find out if they have had a change to that baseline functioning, if there's something in the deployment that has interrupted their functioning so that we could work on it or address it. But yeah. And I mean... Almost... Oh, sorry. sorry. It almost sounds like with at least a screening that you're kind of like a machine, but you have your own emotions and your own, um, you have to carry that burden, even though it shouldn't be yours. You're just kind of a machine to check things off. Whereas it's kind of different when you're a therapist, you need to evaluate on specific criteria, but you also need to be a human being and relate to a person as a human. For sure. Like, um, the screening wasn't just me. The screening was the dentist and it was, uh, their medical officer. It was getting their vision checked. It was all of these other things. It's just that that's an easy box to check. Yeah. You got 2020 vision. Yeah. Your blood work is fine. Yeah. Your teeth are good. Um, whereas there seems to be something different about, you know, my role and a level of responsibility that I would feel that's probably not actually reasonable. Yeah. So how long were, were you in that role, Jeremy? Yeah, so that was two years. And uh, one of the things I wanted to touch on, um, so we also had in Cold Lake, we had a social worker that was specifically specialized in addiction-related concerns. And so half of their time was addiction-specific. And this is like way before this whole idea of pushing for what they call concurrent capable practice, where people know and understand both addiction and mental health. This was way before that. And, uh, and it, was, it was amazing how far ahead the military was because we would do this concurrent process all of the time. We would consult cases. Um, they would ask about any addicted, uh, addictive behavior. We at times would hand off to that person for a certain part of the assessment or treatment. They would hand them back. It was, uh, it was a system that really, really worked. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, you know, I, I have a few questions that kind of come to mind um, with that, but I'm just going to kind of back up and just kind of say it, it sounds like the military was really at the forerunner, forerunner, speak, forerunner of mental health and just sort of, like, like you said, really looked at caring for those individuals. I'm, I'm a little bit curious about if you can speak to how addiction really um, works or is really represented in the framework and the culture of the military and how that impacted your work. Yeah, um, so they were really trying to change some of the culture and that's still an ongoing thing. I think there's a lot of, of growing pains that are happening with that. It's just historically, um, alcohol was like water, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, and it was just a major part of the culture, and uh, on the ships they would have like a keg that um, the 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 queen would order to be opened, as it were. Yeah, everyone was kind of given their ration of rum. Yeah, you know what do you do with a drunken sailor? Early, early in, the in the, yeah, early <laughs> in. <laughs> Put him on the boat till he gets sober. You know, <laughs> okay. like, like like they even sang songs about it. Yeah, well, and there again, too, I mean, 
even like from historical basis, you look at where the Hells Angels came from. I mean, those were pilots in World War II that were given stimulants, given uppers as a way to keep them flying. And then when those individuals came home, they had this addiction. They ended up having to try to find a way to feed that. And then that eventually morphed into um, the organization as it is today. Huh, curious. Yeah. Yeah. So when it, when it comes to drug of choice, uh, definitely it was alcohol. And I think because that became just part of the culture and really anything else was like, what? You have smoked marijuana? I'm sorry, but we're going to kick you out, remove all your medals, and, uh, and, and we, we might even, like, take your headdress and rip it up and throw it in the garbage. <laughs> you know, that, that's interesting that you bring that up because, and, uh, you know, I'll reference, uh, like, because you talked about the fact that with a lot of these military members, um, when they go into the military, they have this sense of, Family, the sense of identity that is really about the military itself. And, you know, kind of going back to like the whole concept of tribe that we've talked about and sort of that loss of identity. Wow, like just, I, I can't imagine what that would be like for you as a mental health professional if these individuals had these other substances that they were using and if they were to disclose to you sort of the responsibility that came with that. So for the most part, what would happen is there would be an alcohol-related incident. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it'd be like, oh, you got a problem. You know, it, it wasn't understood as, a, as our culture has a problem. It was, oh, you got a problem. Yeah. So, and you caused some kind of disgrace or something. So we got to send you to the wing addiction counselor. And by the way, of course, they love acronyms. So mm-hmm. wing addiction counselor officer. Wacko. <laughs> wow, wow. Like, Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, I don't know. Like, but, but there again, too, I'm wondering on that level if that almost speaks to the culture of the military as well, uh, kind of covertly, like having that, that acronym. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, uh, and then be, they'd be like, okay, we got to send you away to a coffee course and get you sorted out. So that's how um, kind of addiction was understood. It was understood in terms of, oh, we can see you got a problem with alcohol. We'll send you away and get that sorted out. Um, but any other substance, you might as well be a demon. Yeah. But, but I mean, even there, even with the alcohol, I mean, really, um, you know, it, it sounds like it's almost dealing with, it's just like, we're going to shave off the tip of the iceberg. Sure. So, yeah, we're, we're, you know, it's, it's sort of that solution-focused or um, uh, motivational interviewing approach where it's like, okay, let's use that, but like, let's not dig any deeper. Yeah, and, uh, and just the way that is understood, oh, you know what, maybe you got a little bit messed up in tour. And uh, and so we could we could understand that that you're you're having some problems with this, um, and, but but not really understanding that it that is beyond that that the the trauma is really important, but it's also about the culture. It's also about before what what was this person's baseline like before they were a military member? Mm-hmm. What was their connections like before? Um, was this exacerbated by? Uh, disconnection that was in their story way before they were a military member. So some of that was missed at the time. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, go, um, go I ahead. I think that um, 
might be thought of from you guys discussing this is that alcohol somehow um, caused their addiction. And I just wanted to specify that alcohol does not cause addiction. And I want to know what you guys think was some factors that would have led these people to their addictions and to be reliant on alcohol. Sure. That's a good question. I, I like that because if alcohol caused addiction, then 90 whatever percent of people that drink alcohol would be addicted. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, about 10% of people that use substances get addicted to those substances. So it's clearly... Of course, it was a big part of their culture. So not everyone would have been addicted to alcohol. Just the people who had addictions would have been. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so uh, I, I want to uh, kind of be clear in that answer, I think. And that is, I think, one of the issues that was related to this is the message that people received was soldier up. Um, it was only during the time that I started working in the military that there happened to be a transition in that. In other words, that this is normal. Military members go through horrors and you need to just soldier up and deal with it. Yeah, it's kind of like the old British saying of stiff upper lip. Like, you know, it's it's not address your feelings. It's kind of put on the brave front, put on the identity of a soldier and don't betray that. Yeah. And, uh, and so that was a big reason, I think, for part of the addiction issue is because drinking was considered to be um, normal. It was considered to be okay within the culture. And so I don't know how to deal with how I'm I'm functioning. I don't know how to deal with the pain, um, and I'm not allowed to talk about it. I'm not allowed to be weak. I can't go get help, so I'll drink mm-hmm. because that's acceptable. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and I'm almost wondering too um, if there if there would almost be with some of those individuals um, for people that would have um, just sort of epigenetic factors that would almost be more concurrent within military members or even in those military families if, yeah. it, if it was a legacy. Yeah, that, that's something that someone recently said to me. They recently said to me, it's strange that you have um, this kind of insight into the military psyche without having a lot of, you know, coming from a military family. My dad was Air Force just for a few years and never deployed. So, yeah. Um, for sure. I'd, I'd like to have a chance to be able to compare some of the other systems. Now, I worked for, uh, L- uh, at the time, as LDS Family Services. It was a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, their mental health services, in which the bishops would refer people. Now, one of the things that was great about this, it's not a fully encompassing or universal option, and that's part of, I think, one of the things that I'm really pushing here. The military had a great system, but it's only for their people. Mm. Um, the church had a good system, but it's only for their people. And people that had the ability to pay, paid. People that didn't have ability to pay, then the welfare system inside the church paid for their care. And, um, and so, so it, was a, it was a good system. It was a, a collaborative system in which the spiritual leader then the individuals that were coming in for for care would sign a consent form that would allow us to work with their spiritual leader and we would be able to give them that kind of holistic care that came with that. And I worked with with them just 
part-time on the side. I did that while I was in Cold Lake. I did it while I was in Calgary at the Calgary Counseling Center too. So I would go and I would see a full day of people. And then at night I would go and see almost a whole nother full set of what would be a normal day. Wow. Yeah. What was it like jumping between the two systems? Uh, Yeah, it was, it was actually pretty easy because there was surround support in both systems. The supervisor at LDS Family Services was really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and one more story. That is when I was leaving, I had the most bizarre experience. Someone had been referred to me to, uh, because they had a, a cocaine addiction. And so I was, I'd been trained in the motivational interviewing process at the Calgary Counseling Center. I'd been trained in you know, readiness for change and realizing where, how to meet them in that readiness. So I was just working with it. And then I was going to leave and I needed to transfer the person. And I was talking about transferring. They said, what do you mean you were seeing someone with cocaine problems? We don't see addiction. They got to go somewhere else. They got to go to ADAC and sort that out. And then they can come work on their mental health. And I went, that makes no sense to me. Yeah, you're like, whoa, wait, I've been in systems before where we just work together on these things. No, keep in mind, I hadn't gone, hadn't been a part of the military yet at that oh, point. Okay. And actually, come to find out, that's really how all the other systems worked. It was like, oh, you're drinking that much or you're using cocaine? Yeah, we can't help you with your mental health. You got to go sort out your addiction first. Yeah, you know, as if there's something different, as if like an addiction isn't a mental health concern. Yeah, it's like saying, you know, if, if you're a doctor, oh, oh, you got a broken leg, I just do arms. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to go and see a leg doctor here. Let's, let's just, you know, here, get off my gurney, hobble across the street, and you know, then, we'll, then come back, and then we'll deal with your broken yeah. arm. And, and I think this is a great transition point because. After working for a couple of years with the the, the military, um, I had not wanted to stay in Cold Lake forever. The military is wonderful. The people in Cold Lake were great. Um, and in the summer, it was wonderful. It's just Cold Lake is in the middle of nowhere. Mm. And there was like four feet of snow in my, uh, in my yard. And that was like mid-April. <laughs> okay. And, and through the winter, it was like, you know, minus 20 every single day. And it was, uh, it was dark until almost 9.30 in the morning, dark again at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I was, I was done. Okay, so Cold Lake comes by its name. Honestly, <laughs> it was bloody cold. Yeah, I imagine you remember um, Amy uh, doing some interesting stuff in the snow at school and trudging through the snow because I never shoveled the, uh, the sidewalk. I remember at school they would have snow hills and give us the crazy carpets to go down. Then as soon as we moved to Medicine Hat, then for some reason my elementary school was like, no, you can't go on the ice. You can't go on the snow piles. And I was very confused. It's dangerous. Why are you doing that? Dang- <laughs> what are you doing? Don't climb on that dangerous ice pile. <laughs> oh, I'm an ice pile expert. <laughs> I can do this. Yeah. So, uh, so then I was able to secure a position for Alberta Health Services. And I came and I worked two years in a specific uh, position that was for adolescents. So it was a teen program, uh, and it was a, it was a combination between the school and health. And and this is where systems problems really started to become much more evident for me. Okay. 
Um, when I was at the Calgary Counseling Center, I knew that there was an issue because you would wait a year to see a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we were able to provide and meet that need um, in terms of, of, of mental wellness, not psych- psychiatric help particularly, but it wasn't something that was so glaringly obvious to me. But when I, when I worked in this program, there was big problems because to me it really felt like the tail wagging the dog often. That is to say, this is, this is a health program and uh, why are school administrators trying to tell me as a health professional what I'm supposed to do for this kid. Yeah. So, yeah, it really sounds like they were, they were like, no, 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 you have to do this to fit our mandate or our perspective. Yeah, and that was a big part of the problem is their ethics and our ethics are different. That is, their ethical requirement is a mandated client till age 16. That is, someone does not get to choose to come to school or not until they're age 16. Um, our position is informed consent. Mm. They have to consent to treatment. They're like, but no, this kid's got a problem. This kid's got the, all these issues. They're, they're messed up. Their behavior is all out of control. They get to be as crazy as they want, would be my statement. I can't, my, our ethics, there's only one thing that, that overpowers someone's right to self-determine, and that is their safety. Mm. But that's imminent risk of harm. Their behavior can be out of control. And if they're not imminently a risk of hurting themselves or somebody else, then we can't make them do anything. And if they, if they are an imminent risk, they don't come to see us. They go into a psychiatric unit against their will. But as soon as they're not an imminent risk anymore, then they get to do whatever they want again. Yeah. And, and I mean, right there, I, 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 I can just picture you having to advocate for these kids uh, right when you're saying that to the administrator. What was it like for you to come up against that? It was really, really hard because relationships obviously are key. And relationships with the other um, professionals, whether that be the, a principal for this particular program that was attached to the program or whether it's other administrators that are have kids that they're trying to get into the program, um, the idea of what the program was, which for a lot of times was behavioral behaviorally out of control um, kids that weren't actually interested in change and then what am I supposed to do with them like this idea from the outside that somehow because somebody's got a problem then the system needs to fix it and that's actually not true mm-hmm. and um, and it's hard because um, people don't want to hear that they don't want to have that conversation they go the system failed somebody well, sometimes, yeah, the system failure is not about forcing somebody into care. The system failure that is happening is that we don't have nearly enough availability for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, because I almost wonder there too, like as you're saying that, um, like, you know, like these clients are basically mandated to you, you're advocating for them, you know, they're not at the stage of change of readiness, but who knows, maybe they will be or maybe somebody else's. And how do you meet those needs when you're trying to constantly advocate? Yeah. yeah. And then let's be, be really clear. Like, So I define the part that I can make a difference with and try to create that community inside the program I came up with um, giving uh, the, the kids call names. And it developed into a formal thing and uh, developed a 
we they they were able to create these uh, these graffiti um, tags that they put on the walls, and they would then at the end they would take their hand and they would put paint on it, and they would put it against the wall and their their call name and the year that they were there, and there was a a, a great sense of community during that time, and and yet. A lot of the the surrounding circumstances that were a part of the reason why they struggle, which has to do with other systems problems, and uh, I'm not here to blame parents, um, but a lot of these kids came from very hard situations, and some of those those families and parents weren't ready to make changes that would have created wellness for those kids. So there's the these. These things are, are, you know, multifaceted and, and difficult. Yeah, well, and there again, too, uh, like, I can hear them. I, I can just, I can imagine, like, you're you're coming in, you're probably dealing with this kid, and you're saying to them yourself, okay, how can I create an environment of wellness in that moment when their primary status you know, in the system is they're labeled as a quote-unquote problem child or they go home and their attachment figure is not available or there's other problems within the system. How, you know, there again, too, it, it's about, you know, you're really seeing the cracks in the dam. And it's yeah, like, how many, sure. how many fingers can I put in there? Yeah, so, uh, like, it really did show me some of the issues that uh, the education system has. Um, their mandate really is around creating um, youth that are able to write, read, uh, develop some critical thinking skills, um, gain this this education, and yet it's set up kind of like a factory. Mm-hmm. And um, it doesn't, doesn't really actually meet kids' needs. As, a, as an example, there's some really good data that says kids can't really think and learn early in the morning they shouldn't actually be starting school until like 10 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. and um, they really shouldn't be in school for more than six hours because their capacity to absorb is over um, and some of these these known pieces of data are not being being used because it doesn't work for the adults that are in these kids life you know we got two income earners and we can't have our kid, you know, that is six years old, home until ten o'clock in the morning, because we need childcare. And and so some of the things that are happening within our system, they're real problems, and they're, but but they're not about actually meeting the child's need. They're about making it convenient for the adults that are involved, whether that's the parents, whether that's the teachers. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I can only imagine r- right there, like, and then the parents on some level. You know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, and if I'm shifting the conversation. But they're almost depressed on their own level too, as well, by whatever systems that they're a part of. And the thing is, yeah. that at at the end of the day, um, what 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 masters are we truly serving? Are we are we truly serving the population, or are we serving these these nebulous things, like whether it be um, businesses or corporations or yeah and um I'm not here to blame somebody like uh, no. the majority of the teachers that I saw the majority of the um, administrators that I saw actually really care mm-hmm. it's just that they don't understand that the culture that they experience the world view that they have is outdated mm-hmm. and it, it our infrastructures that we have in these systems are outdated 
and they need to be updated and they need to be changed. Yeah, exactly. You you have to ask yourself what is going to really bring about the greatest health for everyone involved. Yeah, and so then I was recruited. Kind of actually, uh, one of the the supervisors came to me and said, "Hey, there's a position that is in the main clinic downtown. Um, we've got one on children's team, one on adults team." Um, I found out that the one on adult team actually half time would be providing service to Bow Island, which is a, a small community about a half an hour from Medicine Hat, and it meant that I would get to see everybody. Mm-hmm. I would get to see, um, you know, anyone from childhood age through seniors, and I went perfect. Like they're like, well, you know, if you're going to take this position, you have to know that you got to travel half your time to Bow Island. I'm like, wait a minute, you're going to pay me? on your dime with your car mm. why does anybody think this is a why are you having a problem people accepting that that doesn't make any sense to me yeah yeah and, and you're you're like whoa wait i can actually treat people across the the life spectrum like look at the various issues within these systems and really have that diversity of care and um, it sounds to me like that was just a job that was right up your alley. Yeah. So if I could share to you, kind of with you, what what happened. So this is what I learned and experienced. In Medicine Hat, there was a lot of pressure uh, in terms of number of people seeking help, and one of the ways they dealt with that is they go, okay, we're not going to offer an appointment every single week and have a waiting list. What we're going to do is we're going to offer an appointment every other week, and actually worked for a long time. And then in Bow Island, there wasn't nearly as much pressure. Um, so I didn't have an entirely full schedule. I would have um, a couple of empty slots or an empty slot every single day, usually. And then some in the summer, some really slow times. What I saw happen within the system, this is why I say the mental health crisis has been here for a long time. Mm-hmm. So what I happened, happened in the system is there came one point in time in which uh, we had a couple of practitioners leave the clinic. Um, and it's kind of a perfect storm. And all of a sudden, we weren't able to offer an appointment except for once a month. Whoa, yeah. So you guys just had just enough resources to get by everything. It was just, it was almost like balanced on a pinhead, and then somebody leaves. It was dangerous. Yeah. It was dangerous, to be honest. Yeah. Like we, uh, then in, in Bow Island, and I was also providing service to an, um, another small community, uh, there was points in which is like and this is kind of a my issue uh people weren't able to get an appointment every single week maybe once every other week and i didn't want to make people wait there was a time in which i didn't have lunch for like a month straight because i just saw people back to back and um and, and but that was for me to manage no one was was setting those appointments i was setting them myself and i kind of figured out ah, it will sort out it'll slow down except that while it didn't get as overwhelming as what was happening in medicine had it didn't really actually slow down the the need just kept growing and so this this is where we're at now i'm i'm saying this not as some kind of um critique against the people in uh the medical system because almost everybody that I know and that I worked with put their heart and soul into helping people. And uh, so this is not a statement of, of a critique about that. It is a really a statement um, about understanding how, um, how much energy and effort are we going to put into this. I was really, really um, committed to, and I still believe in, universal health care. 
And, and for me, there were so many people that I just could not let wait. Mm-hmm. And it's like somebody comes out of the psychiatric unit because they attempted suicide. They get an appointment in a month. Mm-hmm. And then their next appointment isn't for a month. I, I just like just as I hear that like that that, that that's mind blowing like you know how how can like what the minute that they're quote unquote out of crisis then then they're just back to waiting I I can't imagine how infuriating that would be and then what happens what if I'm sick yeah. I I sat for a really long time I've got a chronic um, pain condition myself and I would set up my own doctor appointment like a month away or try to fit it somewhere around everything. Oh, I'm in Bow Island. Okay, I can sneak away for a little bit. I'll see a doctor while I'm there um, to try to, to, to figure this out. And um, because I, I couldn't cancel someone's appointment, because if they, if they canceled their appointment and they had made that appointment two weeks ago, well, now they wait six weeks for me. Or if it's like I'm sick and I'm canceling my appointments today, now they waited two months to see me. Yeah, wow. Like, just just you hear that, I can't, I'm just hearing just sort of that immense responsibility and it's sort of your humanity and the humanity of the people that you're serving is kind of getting lost in this system that is there to serve us all. Yeah, for sure. And so, really, I... um. I want to, to create a little bit of an understanding here. I want people to know. This is, once again, this is not a statement about um, Alberta Health Services not being good enough. Uh, because I worked there and I'm good enough. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I gave recently a, um, uh, a focus group and there just happened to be people that had been, um, that I'd known in, in my capacity with Alberta Health Services. And, um, and I couldn't help but think, I, I can give help now that I couldn't give before. And it's not about my skill. It's about the time that I have. Mm. And, um, and, and so in 2020, I just realized I can't do this because this is going to break me. It already, it already to a certain degree had broken me. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Like just, just as I hear that, like with you, it's like you're, you're going and you're going and you're going and you're kind of saying, you know, how much longer can I do this before I just, I'm completely, um, I've lost all trust and all kind of faith in the, in the, in the mental health system that I can't give anymore. Where you almost have to be selfish. Yeah, and uh, and and really, I think that's about self self love. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it came to a spot in which opportunity to develop, and and I used my past skill set to develop a um, a base of clientele that have um, access to uh, services that are that are are not coming out of their pocket. And um, and then of course some private people of course want to connect and see me myself, and for the most part then I end up providing care at my regular rate of 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 uh, of, of service. And I, I remember I had a conversation with a good friend of mine that had been in the public system for some time and then had gone into private care and what she said to me is because uh, I was really like ah I think I think that that 
there's this unjust, unfair, oppressive process. So somebody has enough money to pay. They get to go and pay and they get help. Um, and then the people that don't have money to pay, it's just it's just not fair. And um, And what they said to me is, you know, there are a bunch of people out there that need help. And some of them just would never be willing to walk through the doors of Alberta Health Services Addiction and Mental Health. They won't. And, and also, um, who are you to tell somebody, get in line, wait your turn? Is that not oppressive? Yeah, well, yeah, like, I, 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 yeah, like, yeah, sorry, like, we're serving number 72, you're number 583. And, um, and that really, I really, took a moment to think about that and went, it's just not as simple as I think. Um, it would be wonderful if there was new systems in place. Mm-hmm. Like, why on earth does somebody go and get to be able to see a doctor and not pay anything, um, but they don't get to see a therapist? Like, why, why is it that doctors are so special that they're the one health professional that are the universal healthcare is connected to? Yeah, well, and I mean, there again, too, it, it, it's, well, yeah, how do we define health? Like, what is health And uh, And, and the, the, it always comes back to dollars. They're like, well, um, our healthcare system couldn't afford this. Actually, in some ways, it can't afford not to. Uh, because if we had the supports in place for people, they wouldn't be in the hospital spending $1,000 a day in the hospital. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't be, our hospitals wouldn't be clogged, our doctor's offices wouldn't be clogged. Um, we, we would have a, a system in which people weren't waiting two, three weeks to see a doctor or specialist because so many of these conditions, if the people had proper support in their life, then they wouldn't be experiencing this level of physical illness. Yeah, yeah, and... You know, and we talk about the fact that mental health and physical health are inextricably linked. So why not treat it when it starts, where it starts, then waiting till you know your arm is falling off, your leg is falling off, you've got IBS. Like, what's if we're truly invested in the health of our population? What's let's start it right when it needs to be. So I'm going to tell you the time that some that that something changed inside me. Um, in my, in my career, I had lots of people die, um, but they died out of the blue. They died from a stroke. They died from a heart attack. Um, they, they died from a, a variety of things, and that was sad. But there was one time, right in that time frame, when things shifted and we couldn't see people very often, that someone came to see me, and they had a serious suicide attempt. They also had a chronic health condition. And, um, and, and that health condition could potentially bring them to an uh, early death. And I got this note in my, in my box at work. And it was, an, uh, it, it was a clipping from the newspaper, and it was their obituary. And that's how I found out they died. Wow. What was that like for you to, to just sort of get what almost seems kind of impersonal? And, um, and is this this position that was like, oh, hey, their appointment's been canceled, they're dead. And, uh, and I, I sat there knowing 
that I'd done everything that I could to try and rectify the issues around the suicidality. I knew that I put a plan together. I knew I did all these things. I didn't know if they died by suicide. I talked to my supervisor. I asked um, about the process. They said, well, if, if uh, it looks like it was something that was a suspicious death, they always request the, the file. And no one requested the file. That was the only piece of evidence that I had to be able to, to determine whether it was a death by suicide or not. Yeah. So, and well, after that, then I, I have found it very hard to let someone wait a month. Yeah, like I, you know, I, I just, wow, like I, I'm just, I'm kind of sitting there and you're thinking to myself, like just what the, that that would just blow me away. I'm, I'm, I'm really surprised that you haven't lost all faith in the system itself. Oh, Trent, I got really angry. I've been very kind today. Yeah. Because I recognize that some of that is my own anger, mm-hmm. and um, and it's uh, it's not for me to critique the system and say how it's terrible and wrong and bad. It's just for me to say the reality that we do not have enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that, that that you're able to be there and like, and I can still hear that there's that anger inside of you, but to be able to temper that and to to try and be um, as as balanced as possible, that that speaks to something inside of you that I think that a lot of people would struggle with. So. I um I think we should really I know this conversation actually could go on. I think that we're uh um in a spot where we should probably wrap things up. We're just about an hour and 20 minutes in. Wow. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I I'll admit I didn't think that we were uh here that that long. Um just as we kind of wrap up here. I'm 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 wondering through all of these various times like for working with the Calgary Counseling Center, working with the military, working uh, in um, the PASS program, mm-hmm. and, and then working with AHS. Like, what are the big takeaways that you've really taken away from all of those different programs uh, that has really um, informed who you are beyond, like, the system itself? Yeah, so I think the the big takeaway for me is that... Um, I, I realized at some point that I couldn't be a part of a of a system and not meet meet my rules, my mm-hmm. rules around what does it mean to meet somebody's needs, and that I, I really felt like I was trying to stand in the South Saskatchewan River and put my arms up and hold the whole river back. Oh, that's not going to work. And, and the other big takeaway is I've seen systems at work. So you tell me that a system can't work, and I'm going to say you don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It can work. It's a matter of are we going to put in, as a society, the priority, the energy, the effort to make it work? Are we going to actually get the people who are making decisions to value what is the most important thing to value? Can we understand that if we set the priorities right, we can change things? 
Absolutely, absolutely. And you know what? I think that's that's a really good invocation to leave off on. And you know, I I really appreciate you uh, sharing your story with us. And I mean, even though you've shared some of them with me, like just to see the grand scope of things, and I think it it really is put for me into context really where you're coming from and get lightened for me a lot of some of the cracks that we've talked about but really seeing how, how much bigger and how much more systemic they are what about yourself amy um it's just very interesting for myself listening to the experience that my dad has had as i am a student that's pursuing social work and I don't know what opportunities life will throw at me. And there's all types of different environments that I could explore and all types of different people that I can help and different problems that I'll face depending as well. So it's very interesting to hear my dad's own experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, I'm Trent Nakers. I'm Jeremy Alcorn. And this has been Humanizing Mental Health. This podcast is intended as general information. We are glad that you joined us today. We hope this message has been as meaningful to you as it has been to us. If you're looking for help, you can find us on Facebook at Humanizing Mental Health or at HumanizingMentalHealth.ca. Humanizing Mental Health is a plugged-in media production.